This is the Business Central Manufacturing Show, and I am Martin Karlovich. Hi folks, today I'm with Mike Fontaine from Canada. Mike started his career with a manufacturing company as a production planner, buyer and scheduler. Today he's a solution expert with Vox ISM and has 20 years of experience with ERP software. Having implemented over 100 business systems and providing spot consulting to most of Vox ISM's customers, he's generally seen as the operations control expert. Mike combines shop floor best practices and theory with extensive product knowledge and technical app. Mike, thank you very much for taking time and for being my guest in the Business Central Manufacturing Show. Oh, well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Tell me about your first job in manufacturing. How did you get started and what did you do? So long, long time ago, I graduated out of University of Waterloo and couldn't find work. And I went to Conestoga College for a degree in supply chain management. This was the APEX course. And shortly thereafter, I got a job at a company called Trilon, who built cell phone towers. So this was in the 90s, and cell phones were the new thing. BlackBerry was taking off, which just so happens to be in the same town as the cell phone ma manufacturer, Waterloo. And we went from you know a $10 million business to an $80 million business in a very short period of time. We're talking like two, three years, explosive growth. So my very first job because pretty junior, my very first job was to transfer in bills materials. I did over 280,000 bills materials, looking at drawings, transferring them into the ERP system. And they soon figured out that I couldn't manage that. So I ended up getting a team of students to help me with that. And as I became more proficient in the software, I moved up within the company to become the production planner. So I did full material takeoffs. So I looked at the whole drawing of a cell phone tower and I calculated manually. I was the MRP system. I calculated manually the, uh, the, you know, the lengths that were required, the amount of material to buy. And after I made that a little more automated, then we started to working on cutlass for the saws. And after I did that, then I got into scheduling and running the shop floor. That's sort of my brief career history in, in manufacturing before, I guess it was 2001 when 9-11 happened and nobody wanted to buy a cell phone tower after that, at least really tall towers. And so I went looking for work and I, and I found work at another company called Go Plastics that was a rotational injection molder, sorry, rotational molding, very complicated scheduling requirement. I, I worked at that company for a year or two and then I joined Fox ISM. So that's quite interesting and definitely the first time that I speak to an MRP system. <laughs> so when did you make the first change from being the MRP system to running an MRP system? And what was the key learning from that time? Yeah, so what's interesting when you're in the cell phone, it's really a construction business. So you, you would they would let, line up a series of site installations. So you, you imagine they're building a network. So they start here in this city and then they move and they want to move to another city. So they need repeater towers. And so it was this line that we were building that occurred over several months, which if I was just calculating manually one cell phone tower, I could probably handle that. I could use a spreadsheet for it. No problem. But as soon as you started adding a variable of time and a variable of change, it 
blew my mind. Like I'm a smart guy, but at some point you cannot calculate all of the changes that are happening across several different sites over a period of time. This concept of knowing what to buy and when, like time phase material planning just is impossible. At that moment, when I came to that sort of realization, then I said, listen, I got to spend some serious time looking at the MRP systems. Before then, I hadn't like I had been exposed to it theoretically in school, but I didn't have any real world application, which is really difficult if you're starting off. If you don't know like real life what a, the scenario you're dealing with, it, it's hard to transfer it from theory into practice. So having been through the pain and torture of doing manually and realizing there's no way that I'm smart enough to handle time phase material planning introducing multiple change orders into the cycle. Then I started spending a lot of time, evenings and weekends, looking online, understanding manufacturing theories, uh, supply chain, and uh, started to implement the MRP system back in, whatever, 20 years ago. And what was the first MRP software to work with? My first MRP software that I was working with was Visual Manufacturing. It is now, it was owned by Lilly Software, and now it's owned by Infor. Infor is one of the largest consolidators in the ERP space. Visual Manufacturing was great. Back in the 90s, it was it was an expensive software. It was also Windows-based. It was the first Windows-based ERP system on the market. And it came with everything. It had a scheduler. It had MRP. It had change orders. It had order planning. It had financials. It had everything. Prior to that, like you could buy software that was just for manufacturing. You could buy it just for accounting. You could buy scheduling software or MRP. But you couldn't buy it all together under one umbrella and Windows-based. So this was relatively new software. It was relatively niche. Like uh, Jim Heaton, the owner of Box ISM, he was basically the territory rep of Canada, all of Canada. He got the rights back in, in the 90s and he started to sell this. And uh, where we're located here, like I am live in southwestern Ontario, and there's a lot of manufacturers in a very small pocket of the world. Like within, you know, we Vox ISM has about 800 customers in total, and probably 300 of, the, of them are not separated more than 50 kilometers. They're very tightly packed. So everybody knows one another. And, uh, it, and visual manufacturing sort of exploded with sales and references. Uh, was really good at the time. And there was a big community. And I was one of the first people that was actually trained by a software company. Like it doesn't seem to happen nowadays that you're actually trained by the people who developed it. And that was part of my success, actually having like theory and then training from the software manufacturer and an environment where, you know, it was explosive growth and they were doing anything possible to save on hiring people. So now you work on Business Central, which now obviously is not the first ERP system that you work with. So what was it like switching from Info Visual Management to Navision, as it was called in the early 2000s? Having been a product expert in visual manufacturing, making the switch and I'm going to assume this is going to happen with anybody making a switch to a new ERP, all you can see in the beginning is all of the warts, like all of the problems, all the little nuances that, oh man, this software doesn't have this and it doesn't have that. And it's only after maybe a year or maybe two years that you realize what you were wearing before was a quote unquote, a dirty shirt. There's so much more capability in Business Central. I never had any problems with the financials with Business Central ever everything reconciled every month. Whereas that was a, a very difficult challenge. 
with visual manufacturing, couldn't balance the month end. I've had problems in converting other systems over in the same way where the tables get out of line or out of sequence that disappears with Business Central. The other thing with Business Central is because of the amount of technology that they're putting into it, especially now in the last maybe three years, explosive technology growth, that the amount of software that you're buying today versus the amount of software that you're buying in the past. Remember that purchasing an ERP system 20 years ago, $200,000, dollars cash upfront, and you only got a third of the total software that you get today. You get a jobs module for project accounting. You get a WMS system. You get a service module. You get full manufacturing. You just get so much more software, more functionality, more capability, and deeper, way deeper than what you would have in in some of these, I'll call it tier three or older systems. And I think that's just a product of growth and, and time as more people get more experience. It's interesting that you speak about the amount of technology that Microsoft brings to the manufacturing industry and brings to Business Central. And just a couple of days ago, I read an article that you wrote on LinkedIn. And there you spoke about that you started to use AI technology, so artificial intelligence technology, not on the manufacturing side of things, but to build a scoring mechanism for your sales leads. And then you started to make a comparison to a system that you built 15 years Years ago to automatically prioritize work orders. So could you shed some lights on this? I found this very interesting. Yeah. You know, the more and more that I start, you start hearing about the AI and then you realize, hey, wait a second. I was the AI <laughs> back and then. I built the intelligence into, into technology, into, into software. So in, in the terms of our company, I was interested in understanding, I'll call it the intent so how many times someone had come to uh, an event, if they brought mul multiple people, if they were a senior level executive, if they downloaded material. So the more instances that they would have exposure to our company, that meant that the lead sort of bubbled up to the surface and it became someone that I should be calling, understanding that it was too soon, call people at the bottom of the funnel. Think of it like a peach ripening on, on a tree. You can't pick it right away. It's got to get to the point where it's you know usable, that uh, it's fruit. Now, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I ran into the same sort of concept. The, the company that I was working with made mufflers, exhaust mufflers, and it was a high-speed make-to-order environment. So they basically waited until they got the order, and then they made the parts. So that meant it was a very dynamic scheduling environment. And they had tried for many years, many different techniques of scheduling. And they, and they all came to the conclusion that uh, this concept of prioritization, which is like you have a spreadsheet and you go one, five, not very good because it falls apart over time, simply because it's too onerous. Today, you have one, two, three, four, five, and then tomorrow you completed one and two. So you just went, end up with three, four, five, and you know the cycle goes on and on. And eventually that system falls apart because of the effort it takes to maintain. It. And in a in a typical company, you're going to have people switch out maybe every three, four years. That's sort of sort of the norm, at least in in Canada. And so I sat down with the owners and there and they sort of had this vision back then of saying, well, why don't we automatically queue? Uh, we we present the things that the workers should be working on now at the top of the list and save the other things 
that they shouldn't be working on at the bottom of the list. And so we started to talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, the analogy first started off with baseball. I don't know if you watch baseball, Martin, but you have the guy, you know, at the bat, like he's sitting there, he's on the plate, basically. And then you have the guy sitting, you know, on deck, he's warming up. And then the next guy sitting in the hole. So that sort of concept we wanted to translate into uh, our scheduling software, or at least our report of what you should be working. So the the idea of the people at bat would be basically everything that is currently on the floor. So if I cut it, if I cut the piece of metal, well, I better finish what I started manufacturing. Otherwise, I'll just end up with a lot of work in process. So anything that had already started the first operation, it became the I'll call it priority number one, things that we should continue to work and continue to finish so that they became sellable product. And then we started saying, okay, well, if that's kind of the number one-ish, there might be other categories inside of that kind of uh, red flags or priority orders. We had prior to that just had like a red sleeve, like a, a we'd stuff this physical work order traveler in a red sleeve and that became, you know, priority number one. And back then I said, okay, well, we can't have that many red sleeves, otherwise just like floor full of red pieces of paper. So we came up with the concept of, of I think it was, uh, it was 10 in total. There was 10 folders possible that you could do. We couldn't have any more priority called number one. And so if the worker saw that he had a red piece of paper, then he, and, and he had a white piece of paper, red sleeve versus not, he knew implicitly that he needed to move, needed to work on this one first, and then he would work on the the, the white piece of paper section, anything, any red piece of paper showing up. So we translated that concept of priority or hot jobs or rush jobs into our on the plate theory. And we basically had two sections. We had parts that were rush and then parts that were being cut. And physically on the floor, they were red pieces of paper and white pieces of paper. So that dealt with the, you know, the immediate thing. And then we also further sorted this. So in terms of cutting, we would sort from largest to smallest outside diameter. And then we we started looking at the next batch uh, which typically would represent things that, that, in my opinion, should have been left on in the production controllers area. So I've been in manufacturing a long time. I know that as soon as you send out a piece of paper to the floor, they're going to cut stuff. They're going to ignore completely whatever whatever schedule that you have on a piece of paper. They're going to completely ignore it. So my theory had always been to hold the paperwork until they were ready for it. But I didn't want to give them the opinion that we were running out of work. So this on, on deck, like we're warming up sort of thing, was sort of a queue of three days worth of jobs that were they had material, but we weren't ready to start working on. So I don't know if you've been to Disney World, but you don't put someone on the ride unless someone else comes off the ride. Or in, in the case of COVID, where you don't let the person into the store unless another person comes out. So that was sort of the idea behind the, the second batch where we, A, we checked that we had materials. And then B, we didn't release, automatically release those orders until another order was finished. So every one on, another one popped in. And then we dealt with the, I'll call it the fuzzy logic, the ones that didn't have material, or maybe they had material, maybe production orders or purchase orders were queued up. Uh, and we put them into the third bucket, meaning people could see that we had a backlog, but we, we didn't really give them any visibility other than we had a like a queue of hours. It was really just the first two buckets of categorization. And that was all done 15 years ago with crystal reports and some deep thinking that 
that went into the system. It's super interesting. And and if I summarize this, or if I try to bring the elements together, then you built a system that was priority-based, rule-based, and constraint-based. And you found the right mix to balance out what is highest priority. You considered rules like material availability and uh, some sequencing rules. And then you looked also some at some constraints and tried to build a manageable workload for the workers but not an overwhelming work. So to me, this looks as a very prescriptive system. What level of empowerment did the workers have? Which kind of rights to change sequence did they have? Or was it just that they executed one work order after the other in the sequence of order you gave to them? So the red covers were always number one. So if you if, if you had parts show up and you had a bin of parts with a red sleeve and a bin of parts with a white sleeve, your job was to work on the red and then move that forward. If you had three or four bins and one was red and the, the other ones were non-generic or non-generic, you could work on them in whatever sequence you wanted. I call it black box schedule. Because I've tried before explicitly stating, do this first, do this second, do this third from an office, never works. Never ever works because unless you're on the floor and you understand implicitly like the the nuances that go into manufacturing well and this particular type of steel it doesn't play well in the bed after we do a change out of this type of of, of aluminum like you don't know that if you're just sitting there from you know a, a computer terminal arranging priority so I don't bother trying to micromanage the exact sequence I'd simply say listen this is our queue. You can do it in any sequence that you'd like, but this re also represents a day's worth of production. So you should be able to finish everything within the bucket, whatever way you choose. And then we put on the report, you know, uh, the types of information that would allow them to make the decision. So how many, what was the whole pattern? What's the type of steel? And what was the outside diameter, the inside diameter? All, all of these things that the operators would know, and then they could make their own choices working within the quote unquote black box of our on deck, call it uh, baseball players or work order, if that makes any sense. Yeah, this makes super sense. And I really, I really love the phrase black box scheduling. But if I try to um, translate this into the time now, then I wonder how this would work in a world that is always on, where I see that people look at scheduling, but also kind of expect a schedule to automatically update based on live information that comes from the shop floor. So I would assume that in your black box scheduling system, also the workers had to report at the end of the shift or at the end of the day or at the end of a job that they were finished, but not in real time, right? Yeah, not in real time. Remember, what I had was a paper-based system. So the moment that I printed a piece of paper, that information's obsolete and it, it was very difficult. So the, the only way that you could really manage it is if you were not just the guy sitting behind the desk scheduling, the only way it really worked is if you were also on the floor facilitating the flow, like making sure that people knew, like enforcing it, enforcing the schedule, enforcing the, the flow. How it would work today is hopefully you have, you'd have the, the, the technology to update the schedule from the phone while you're on the floor. That would be the ideal. And then you could sit there in a morning meeting, you know, right by the CNC machine and you're staring at the 
product that's sitting in front of you right now, you're like, oh, obviously we're going to be doing this one first, this one second, this one third. And you would be able to drag and drop it from, I'll call it a line scheduler or from a foreman's perspective. Still the concept of the, of the black box makes sense. The master scheduler, he simply says, okay, well, you can do this work in two days, or you can do this work in three days. And that's all he does. He's just level loading the factory, making sure that the customer commitments are met. And then it has to go down to like, maybe not just one person, you might have like 10 or 15 people that are doing the, the micro adjustments of the schedule. It's no different than, you know, writing on a piece of paper on your dispatch list. This one's for Mike and this one's for Bob. And, you know, remember to do, remember to call me at the end of, uh, end of this production run, because I want to inspect it. It's that translation from paper now to an electronic system, but still the, the theory of, I'll call it of the black box, whether you have one day's worth of steady production of no chain. That was always the big challenge, right? Where today, you know, customer phones in and everything changes and it makes a big mess. A lot of companies that are, I'll say, relatively junior in this concept of scheduling, they don't understand that all manufacturers should operate with this concept of a frozen schedule, a slushy schedule, and a wet schedule. So when I talk about the black box, it's really talking about that frozen time period. And you might not be able to do it right away. Maybe it it's two hours of frozen time period. And then you move into a half a day and then you move into a day. And then that way, you know, everybody understands what they're supposed to do. And it's not absolute chaos. Can't like, imagine if you're steering this big cruise ship and the pilot tells you to turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right. You don't go anywhere. So what you need to do is start with this frozen schedule where there is no changes, frozen black box, whatever that concept is. And the sequence can change inside of that, but you don't introduce new jobs or dramatically, you know, eject out four and put in another uh, another order. You wait until you're done, and then you kind of reassess. The slushy period is where well, a pretty good idea, but we're going to talk about if we make any changes. Yeah, we have a big order coming in, but let's first take care of the people that we've already committed, and then the wet period free for all. And each company, depending on their lead time and the type of product that they make, they're going to have different time periods. It might be four hours a week. And then after it could be three months, or it could be if you're in like a larger project environment, where once you start something, you better finish it. Otherwise, you're not going to make any money. So that frozen period might be more like two weeks, and then two months, and then six months. I agree 100% with the idea of having a frozen schedule and having some, let's say, level of freedom for the shop floor workers to work on this frozen schedule. I can imagine that keeping a schedule frozen, even for a short period of time, becomes much harder when there is the availability of live data. So when the master scheduler or the plant manager or the controller sees what is happening on the shop floor in real time and then needs to have the discipline to accept that the schedule for a given point of time is frozen. So then we are talking more about concepts and methodologies rather than technology. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Completely agree. That a lot of people, they come in thinking that the software is going to solve their problems, but without the theory that goes in behind it, then it's, it's empty. And they're never going to be able to succeed. Like even like this concept of frozen, slushy, wet. If you walked into a company with that mindset, you're automatically going to be more successful than someone who doesn't just has the software and says, okay, one, two, three, four, five. They're, they're, that person 
will never succeed in making a manufacturing company great without some backbone experience. Hopefully this podcast will help explain some of these concepts so that uh, future schedulers out there have an idea of theory is equally important as to the technology that they're using. Even Excel can do a great job with the right theory. It's just it gets even better when it becomes real-time and mobile. And I think this podcast will help to explain this. And I will definitely spend some more thoughts on it and maybe do a write-up on this. Or will invite you again for another podcast to dive deeper into this. But right now, it seems that we are getting really to the end of the show. And last but not least, I just wanted to mention that I recently came across an event that is called Best Manufacturing Apps Conference. And my observation is that you are driving force behind this event. So what is it? When is it and why should people attend? Well, it's an online event open to everybody that has an interest in manufacturing and with Business Central. It's coming up on May 26th. It'll be a, a WebEx that anybody can join. And it's designed to showcase some of the best apps out on the market. So if you're in manufacturing and you want to know what's the latest things that are happening in terms of IoT or barcoding or scheduling or uh, the, the world of e-commerce, it's a great event for uh, anybody to attend. Uh, the, the main value of it is that I have 16 vendors lined up in, in speed TED Talks. So it's the only place that you're going to be able to see so many people, so much software in such a condensed time period. Okay, so guys out there, go to the browser, look for Bast Manufacturing Apps Conference provided by Vox ISM, and then sign up there and not only listen to this podcast, but see you at the Bast Manufacturing Apps Conference. And with this, Mike, thank you very much for being my guest today. This was really interesting and insightful. I took a lot of ideas, actually, that I will discuss with our product team for our scheduling solutions, and I hope that we will see you soon. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Business Central Manufacturing Show. 